Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, before we get started today, I first would like to thank Andy W., William K., and longtime saloner and donor Andrew O., all of whom made donations to the salon to uh, help offset some of our expenses with these podcasts. So, Andy, William, and Andrew, uh, thank you all for your support and for uh, being a part of the salon. Now, a few days back, one of our fellow saloners either uh, posted a comment or sent me an email saying that he liked all of the latest podcasts, but he was really in the mood for some more Timothy Leary. Well, you'd better be careful what you ask for, because (laughs) you're in for uh, two or maybe even three podcasts in a row with a good Dr. Leary. And uh, don't worry, I'll get these out in uh, less than three weeks, but uh, what I'm going to play covers uh, three hours. It was a three-hour-long interview, and that's way too long for a single podcast. However, uh, all the material seems to go together. I've I've actually only heard the first third of it, but uh, I'll try to get these out as close together as I can, uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing the next part myself, so I won't drag my feet on that. And in case you think that I've got uh, some kind of a grand plan as to how I program these podcasts, I can assure you that that is about as far from the truth as can be. You see, a couple of years ago, my friend Bruce Damer connected me with Dennis Berry, who at the time was the custodian of the Timothy Leary archive. And thanks to Dennis and Bruce, I've now been able to play a lot of the audio material from that archive, uh, which, as you know, has now been uh, acquired by the New York City Library. And so I've been sprinkling in a Dr. Leary program every month or so, but when my computer crashed earlier this year, I lost my master copy of which of the Leary talks I'd already podcast. So now I have this great big file full of his talks and interviews, but I'm not sure which ones I've already played for you. So today I decided to work from the bottom of the file and just spot check uh, each one of them in order and uh, see what the sound quality was like and then uh, see what the content was. Well, only a few items from the bottom, I came across three one-hour recordings from an interview that Dr. Leary did on KPFK Radio in Houston, Texas a city that is very dear to my heart, as uh, that is where my two sons were born, uh, where I attended law school, and where I also practiced law. In fact, I was uh, actually practicing law in Houston at the time this recording was made, uh, in a studio somewhere probably not far from where I was. Now, what I'm going to play for you right now is the first hour of that radio interview with Dr. Timothy Leary, and it was on the uh, Houston, Texas Pacifica radio station on November 13th, 1976, which means that this was one of his first interviews after being released from prison in uh, April of that same year. And uh, I should mention also that the long introduction we are now going to hear is exactly as it was on the tape. This is, uh, this is how they started their radio show. He flies so high, he swoops so low, he knows exactly which way he's gonna go.
sometimes uh, I make very clear in my public lectures, as I'll make clear right now, I, I don't want anyone listening to this program to believe anything I say. I don't believe in belief, in the sense that uh, belief is a static structure that your mind and your brain uh, use to uh, repetitiously program experience. I do now, and have for many years, considered myself to be, as you said, a simple code clerk. Uh, I'm trying to decipher the genetic code to find out uh, why we're here. I think that uh, scientific laws uh, and scientific order uh, can provide us the directional and navigational clues to uh, why we're here and where we're going. out of prison, still to all appearances a person who aspires to be a leader of men. Behind him stretches one of the most controversial careers of our time. In front of him is an aspiration to move mankind into the next step of human evolution. Is this man to be believed? Not really, as he says himself. What then are we to make of this man, his ideas and his example? Perhaps in this two-part presentation we will find out. What we will hear in this program is essentially one long interview given by Dr. Leary in Houston, Texas on November 13, 1976. Dr. Leary arrived in Houston willing to discuss any of the rumors and suspicions about his recent past. He was also eager to talk about his current plans for space migration, increase of intelligence, and extension of life. Part one of the program will deal primarily with the past of Timothy Leary, Part two will deal with Tim Leary now. Uh, we're very happy to be honored by a visit from uh, Dr. Timothy Leary. Mr. Leary hasn't been doing too much uh, speaking out in public since he's been uh, released from incarceration. And uh, this is an opportunity for a lot of people to find out uh, a lot that they might be wanting to know from Dr. Leary. Our guests include Howard Perlstein, who is uh, Director of Publications of the Contemporary Arts Museum here in Houston, and uh, Dr. Henry Marshall, a psychologist from the Texas Research Institute of Mental Sciences. Henry Marshall is working in psychohistory, and part of his work involves uh, a study of uh, Dr. Leary. I must say it's a, it's a pleasure to see you, Mr. Leary. Very happy to be here. How are you doing? Doing great. Never better. Enjoying Houston? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think Houston is, uh, you know, it has a claim to be the city of the future. It's, uh, you know, it's just uh, flatlands here with all those towers pointing upward, and uh, a lot's happening here, and uh, I can feel the energy, and I'm glad to be part of it. It gets uh, very energetic sometimes. I don't know. It's not not quite as mellow as it might appear, but there's tremendous energy that appears in uh, growing plants and uh, vines and uh, and in the minds of people from time to time. And we, we see it reflected in this radio station and feel it sometimes in this radio station and the relationship between the people that are operating it and the people who are listening. Sometimes it's very strong. Well, um, Howard, I'd kind of like to pass the ball to you. 
Okay, I got it. The question that seems to focus on is the term uh, guru. In its more classic sense, guru is a term that does not specifically mean teacher, but one who exemplifies the way. Since you describe yourself as a code clerk for the DNA code, and that information being ways a way that has been shown to you, um, maybe we can clarify the whole guru, teacher, non-teacher, or merely another disciple along, along the way. Well, I'm a little uh, uneasy about the term guru. Of course, any term, however good it is, can be misused. I've never called myself a guru. That's one of the 24 media images that's been laid on me by an anxious and disturbed uh, public. I tend to shy away from the term guru because you get involved with concepts like perfect masters. Uh, if you're looking for a perfect master, you're recruiting yourself to be a perfect slave. I think that, uh, sure, we learn from people who have information or who have some styles and energy techniques that uh, will help us develop. I sometimes call myself uh, a friendly radio broadcaster from station uh, KDNA. Do you use K or W? Uh, no, we're, we're K. Yeah. You know, there actually was a KDNA yeah. in St. Louis. <laughs> yeah. Well, then, then you're really, you know, basically the position that you're in is you're playing the game along with the rest of us, as we're all playing this game side by side of discovery. But some people uh, don't really care much about the meaning of the game. From my earliest years, uh, I, I wanted to figure out what life was about. I wanted to find out why I was here so that uh, my actions and my desires uh, would have some meaning. I don't understand why everyone isn't mainly and uh, centrally a philosopher. Because if you aren't trying to figure that out for yourself, you're borrowing or begging or passively taking on somebody else's philosophy. And uh, this may lead to situations that are unsatisfactory. There's one difference between my philosophy and many of the uh, philosophies that you'll find taught by professors of philosophy in universities and colleges. And that is that I'm quite serious about it. See, I'm, it's an all-out uh, proposition to me. And when I discover what I think to be a natural law or a signal from the DNA code as to how individuals or species are supposed to evolve, I act on it. Uh, this, of course, uh, can get you in trouble. <clears throat> a philosopher never gets in trouble if his uh, ideas are not new or if his ideas simply uh, mellow out and uh, sustain the current anthill social structure. But if a philosopher's ideas are new and if they are effective and if they are accurate uh, transcriptions of the DNA message, then you're going to shake things up. Then you're going to have people listening to you and changing, and you're going to uh, bring about revisions and reformations uh, in the understanding that we have of human destiny. So that it's inevitable that I live out my philosophy because uh, I really believe in it. I'm not getting paid by a philosophy department uh, to hold down a tenure chair uh, or to win a Nobel Prize or to win any of the anthill rewards for uh, uh, being clever at uh, putting words together totally engaged and involved in uh, what I'm doing, and uh, thus my lifestyle changes. Uh, I've gone through at least, uh, oh, over 30 
different life changes in the last 20 years. And by life change, I mean different residents, different uh, profession, uh, different languages that I'm using to uh, explain myself and talk to others, uh, different goals. People often say to me, well, uh, why, it's terrible, you're inconsistent and you're changing. Well, I look at them and I say, well, aren't you changing? Uh, the name of the game is change. That's the uh, basis of evolution and uh, mutation and growth is, uh, is to change. So that, um, I have played out parts, sometimes I call them uh, B-movies. I've been involved in some of the uh, most important social and cultural uh, and political events of the last 15 years. I think this is inevitable. Uh, I didn't choose this. If I were to do it over again, I would probably avoid some of these political situations, but I don't know if you can. But I've been involved in many of these uh, B-movies, uh, you know, prisons and Algerias and drugs and uh, so forth. People uh, don't realize that they expect that I'm going to live up to uh, some of these past movies. Well, uh, like anyone who's, of course, when you're in the movie, you're playing full tilt all out uh, to, uh, to transmit that energy. Forgive me for being the uh, skeptical interviewer. That, that's your function? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to picture you uh, relating to, uh, in, in, in late uh, 1974, early 1975, when uh, nobody quite knew exactly where you were, but the, the rumors were that you were uh, somewhere in, uh, in federal hands, and uh, you were talking to a bunch of uh, federal people, and I'm trying to picture you, as you were talking to me, I'm trying to picture you relating to those people and what you might have been telling them. I have spent the past couple of hours going through our files here on Timothy Leary, and I found... Oh, you got a file. <laughs> I'm going to file under the Freedom of Information Act. <laughs> hey, you, got my, my you can file. look at them at any time. I, I understand, somebody told me that this story was in the news that you tried to buy a refrigerator the other day, and you forgot your social security number, and yeah. that you, you had them call the FBI to get it. Is that true? As a matter of fact, that is true. Uh, <laughs> I needed to, I had to get a credit thing, and I had to, uh, I was actually to buy a car. I'm becoming very American, middle class, and uh, I didn't know what my Social Security number was. The last time that I remembered using it, the last time I had a, a conventional job was at Harvard back in 1963. So I called Harvard, and they couldn't locate it. So I was thinking about, I'm going to do this. So then I call, I personally called the FBI in San Diego and said, hey, I want, you're there, you're, you're public servants, you're, you're a service of the taxpayer, and uh, you guys are on the ball. I want to, you know, want this information. So they call back in about 10 minutes. They're very embarrassed, and they said, well, you were never wanted in San Diego, and we don't have it here. <laughs> so I said, well, uh, get on your Watts uh, free telephone line and call uh, San Francisco or call uh, Los Angeles. About an hour later, I got a phone rang, and I picked it up, and the guy said, Hey, Tim, 6943894. I said, what? Uh, I didn't know who it was. It was an FBI agent who gave me the number, courtesy of the Los Angeles uh, Bureau of the FBI. That leads us into uh, the area you wanted to know about uh, my conversations with uh, there's, yes, law it, enforcement. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of questions. Okay. I have some. If you'd like to uh, start off, you can go ahead. If uh, you would rather not, I have some rather specific questions here that I'd like to ask you. Yeah, well, let me... Uh, say two things in preparation, and you can ask anything you want, and uh, I'll react uh, directly as, uh, to the extent that I know the answers to your questions, I'll give them to you. <clears throat> Number one, the more 
I found out about what happened in the 60s, the more I realized that I was a pawn of uh, plans and projects, and I was acting out scripts that were written by other people. For example, in the September, the first September issue of Rolling Stone of this year, there was an interesting article in which FBI agents have openly admitted, proudly admitted, that they wrote, uh, they forged letters to Eldridge Cleaver attacking me, signing the names of militant Black Panthers. And I remember very clearly the day in Algeria when Eldridge, who had been very friendly, suddenly came around to see me and he was very angry. He said, look, man, you're ruining all my credibility with the Black Brothers back in the States because that, what am I doing here running a honky-tonk, uh, hippy-dippy circus and we're supposed to be fighting a revolution and they want to know. Uh, and that led directly to the breakdown between me and Cleaver. Now come to find out it was the FBI that forged those letters uh, and, and deliberately provoked the uh, quarrel between me and Cleaver. Those bastards did all kinds of stuff like that back in the 60s. Then they turned around and they wrote Huey Newton uh, forged letters from Black Panthers saying, what's Cleaver doing breaking up white black <coughs> unity? And that led directly, now probably would have happened anyway, but it led directly, it provoked the breakdown between uh, Cleaver and Newton. Now, I don't know yet what happened during much of the late 60s and early 70s and so forth because there were so many double agents and because there were so many scripting written, uh, the authorship of which we may never know. Uh, I have no hard feelings about this. I think that I, uh, my feeling about the FBI was they, that was the ball game and they outwitted us. It's like uh, pro football. They pulled a new uh, reverse on us. So that uh, I think it's, uh, yeah, I feel a little sheepish that I was pushed into positions that uh, I didn't understand. <coughs> Secondly, I feel that I made a mistake in the 60s by becoming uh, so violently partisan. I got very angry uh, when I was uh, thrown in prison for life during the Nixon administration. So that uh, I did uh, get involved, I became angry. And I don't think that anger is a, uh, I don't believe in the politics of anger. And uh, I uh, regret, regret this because I think that it's our, our duty to uh, educate the police, to relate to the police, to uh, to uh, raise their consciousness, and uh, I don't believe in us and them. I don't believe we can alienate ourselves from any aspect of uh, society, particularly the people who run society. So that, in general, uh, when I was in Folsom Prison, I realized that I had to make some reconciliation with uh, the authority. I knew I would never get out of uh, state prison until Ronald Reagan was knocked out of office, who well, actually resigned. And I knew that Brown would get elected. That was my bet, and that happened. Uh, I knew I'd never get out of federal prison as long as Richard Nixon was. It was a great break for me that Watergate happened. It was a great break for all of us, but we're talking about my situation. I don't think I'd be in this room right now if Richard Nixon was still in the White House. Uh, I'd still be waiting out uh, the Carter administration to uh, to get bailed out. Now, during the last uh, couple of years that I was in prison, I did spend time talking to uh, government officials. Uh, I did not talk about, uh, I did not inform anybody. Uh, for number one, they knew more about uh, what I was doing than I did, because being very clear that uh, they, they were infiltrated, their agents infiltrated into my home and into my <coughs> projects all the way through the late 60s and 70s. The, uh, the uh, CIA actually orchestrated many of the moves I made. I didn't realize it, but I, they were 
they were doing it. So there was nothing I knew. I, see, I'm not a criminal. I've never had anything to do with dope dealing. The whole brotherhood myth was a uh, no brotherhood. Uh, I've never uh, informed on uh, dope dealers. I don't know anything about dope dealing. Uh, the government did release a, uh, a press statement that I was uh, informing on revolutionaries and on dope dealers. That was uh, uh, that was a press release by the Justice Department. Now I consider that a test of intelligence. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. After that, yeah. Uh, UPI and all picked them up, and then it was official. Yeah. Leary has been uh, giving information to federal authorities. They could say that as a fact, whereas before Leary is reported to have been yeah. giving information. Um, you true. say that uh, they already had all this information. Do you think that if I was giving uh, information, that uh, the last thing in the world uh, the investigators would do would be uh, uh, warning the, you know, the weatherman yeah. that I was doing it? Uh, they certainly wouldn't be blurting it out. Uh, and I, I consider this really a, a test of intelligence. <coughs> they did that deliberately to cause uh, dissension and paranoia among drug takers, among the counterculture. <clears throat> and among the uh, militant left, I think that was quite obvious, and uh, it succeeded to a certain extent in uh, in uh, creating paranoia in those that. Um, uh, there's there's another aspect to this. See, as again, I say I can't tell. I I don't know everything that's going on. I'll tell you what I know, though, because I think it's of great uh, interest to those who are interested in uh, in government conspiracies. In the late, after the Nixon administration came into power in late 60s, early 70s, uh, one of the big functions of the Internal Security Division of the Justice Department was to go after uh, dissidents, counterculture people, and such Democrats. Because after all, Watergate was an attempt to bust Larry O'Brien, if you remember, and they were trying to set up uh, Bobby, Ke I mean uh, Teddy Kennedy, and they were trying to literally put their enemies in prison. In those days, it is true that the Justice Department was putting a lot of energy into uh, uh, surveying and uh, grand jur jurying and indicting and trying uh, uh, anti-war dissidents, the Chicago 7, the Gainesville people, the Camden. Um, and at that time, they were looking for the weathermen. The situation now is entirely different, uh, and I can... I've been to Washington, I've talked to, to these people, I've observed, and for I spent about three years studying the matter, and again, I don't know, we're involved in very murky, but uh, I'm convinced, matter of fact, I know that the present time the Justice Department has no interest in busting the weathermen. Number one, because the weathermen are infiltrated and they know exactly where the weathermen are. Number two, they know that if they get them, they can't try them because of electronic surveillance, which is illegal. So there's no way they can ever put them in prison. Number three, even if they could, they don't want any more trials. Even before the Carter election, <clears throat> under the Florida regime, they didn't want any more of these political trials because they lost them all. It was simply an embarrassment. Sure, it gave Nixon kicks, but after Nixon was out. Uh, uh, number four, uh, to the extent that the weathermen are in any way an irritant, to the American body politic, as defined by people in Washington, they'd much rather have them silenced underground and under observation than uh, open running around today. So I will say to anyone uh, listening who knows any people in the weathermen that I, I'm convinced that if they were to get a good lawyer, I don't mean a militant lawyer who wants to 
you know, to use them as uh, martyrs, assuming they don't want to. But if they get a good lawyer to investigate it, I think that uh, uh, I'll, I'll put my reputation on the line. Uh, it's a risky thing to do. And say they have a 99 chance out of 100 that they would never do. They would never be tried. And they would never uh, go to prison. And they'd be allowed to operate freely in uh, the American culture. And maybe they don't want to do that. I know the government doesn't want them to do it. But again, the government I'm talking about is a government that existed in Washington a month ago. And with the Carter uh, uh, regime coming in, I heard that uh, your uh, Congressman Jordan is, for example, it could be the next attorney general. Wouldn't be at all surprised. Yeah. So uh, again, any of these political or conspiracy theories have to change as we go along. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, that uh, that kind of uh, answers quite a bit of this. Uh, I would like to show down through the questions once again. Uh, first thing is, okay, uh, did you turn in attorneys for paying money to the Weather Underground to spring you? Did I turn them in? Uh, well, did this happen? Did attorneys get buy the Weather Underground? Did attorneys buy your uh, escape? And did these attorneys subsequently get uh, evidence presented against them by you? Yes. Yeah. All that's true. Okay. <laughs> you want to elaborate? Mm. Well, why don't, you, why don't you ask questions? I don't really have any. <laughs> I've been through about uh, 29 B movies, and uh, yeah, I'd be glad to to go into any. Uh, I'm, I'm not a details on suitable cross examiner, really. I just uh, it just uh, do you think this was one of those uh, uh, one of those many scenarios in which we haven't uh, quite discovered the scriptwriter yet? Oh yeah, yeah. This. Uh, uh, among three, uh, among three attorneys that were involved in my case, uh, or four, at least two of them are are double agents or even triple agents, since that they were uh, number one involved in actually planning criminal activities, which I was involved in, didn't know about, and second, uh, they were uh, they were acting as my attorney, and thirdly, they were. Uh, Involved fairly actively with the government. Uh -huh. I call that a three-way attorneys. I wrote an article in uh, the National Review called "The Outlaw Industry." Did you read it? No, I didn't. Yeah, in which I went into great detail about uh, uh, what I considered to be a uh, an outlaw industry, which is uh, masterminded, in which the the attorneys are the uh, directors, the media is the producers, and the stars are uh, outlaws who flash onto the scene for a brief period of time. And are, uh, there's a whole scenario there. Uh, there's a search, then they're busted, there's a grand jury, then there's a big trial, and then they're uh, convicted, and they disappear from the scene. And uh, a, new, a new series of, um, of outlaw criminal stars developed. In one year, 1973, I had a list of my... Twelve such outlaw people: the SLA, Patty uh, uh, Hearst, uh, Squeaky From, uh, Joan Little, uh, the Berrigans coming in and out, uh, Eldridge Clearer has come back. 
how are you getting along with all the people who joined in an organization called People Investigating Leary's Live? Well, let's see. Uh, uh, specifically, you'd be talking about uh, Baba Ramdas. Particularly, yeah. One. Yeah, he's, uh, he has agreed later that he was used uh, politically by that, and he's uh, uh, expressed his regret for being involved in that. Alan Ginsberg was involved in that. Uh, he, again, has uh, expressed regret and felt that, uh, although I understand his position was rather... Uh, he was not part of it. He agreed to yeah. speak there and, mm -hmm. and, yeah. and did not oppose, but he tended to establish, reestablish some reality at the place, yes. Then there's my son, Jack, uh, who uh, had been told a lot of lies about... Uh, they told my son, Jack, uh, that I was informing on him and I was trying to get him busted. For example, and that uh, you know, so the background of that thing, uh, he and I, are, he was made a mad because I, I pulled out and wasn't around uh, for a while. Yeah. I'd seen him for seven years, so uh, he and I are friends again. Uh, uh, Jerry Rubin, well, I don't know, you know Jerry. Uh, he's uh, he, uh, telling people that he loves me and wants to debate me. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, Jerry's name was not on the petition, actually. And the day of the press conference, there were several telegrams from people who had subsequently found out that he was on it, asking that their names be taken off of it. Uh, Ken Kelly's name was the only one on it. And uh, quite a few telegrams came in saying, if we had known that Jerry was involved in this, we wouldn't have signed. So um, when you talk about, yeah, friends, see, the friends, the people I knew, Ginsburg, my son, uh, Baba Ramdas, I don't know, I never met. Ken Kelly's not a friend of mine. He's, we have a lot of political differences. I want to make clear, I'm very opposed to partisan politics and uh, the the extreme right and the extreme left, which operate on bad vibes, uh, are, are by definition my enemies, and I don't back away from that, and I'm not out to get them. On the other hand, I, I clearly uh, am a threat to uh, to bad vibration politics. So there's a talk about friends. Um, the only other friend that was there from my past was Gene Schoenfeld, who uh, actively tried to break thing up with comedy. So there were no friends. There was all this room about friends uh, mm -hmm. that I was informing on friends, or my friends were denouncing me. Uh, well, uh, at the conference, we uh, Howard was there. I, I attended so, uh, it, and we went through it. And as a journalist, um, I was working so I, to try and put together a story from it. Um, the only things of interest that really came out was Allen Ginsberg's 44 questions because he questioned all the premises. What we came out with was the hard information, so-called, they had was that there was a videotape of a uh, videotape deposition that a woman who nobody knew but who was later identified as somebody who works with the police in New York had written about in Village Voice, which uh, is not really enough to go on to even do a speculative article, and that's all I've ever heard of that. Then there was the <laughs> report that you had informed on Bernadine Dorn at the grand jury, uh, whose name you had also mentioned. In that was supposed to be a Chicago grand jury, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that information had been published a couple years before in Conventions of a Hope Bean and in several other places. The only other thing that he got away with during the press conference, which we checked out with lawyers later, was that you reportedly um, testified against... Uh, your attorney, uh, Chula, uh, for having brought you, <laughs> brought you some dope in jail. And uh, I was told later that, in fact, you had not testified at his trial. That's right, yeah. He was never in jail, yeah. 
I hate, I'll talk about that. I've never talked about it publicly because uh, Chula has got a lot of, uh, he's, yeah, he's, I don't want to, uh, he's got problems, and, uh, but <clears throat> now you bring it up, <clears throat> I'll talk about uh, uh, one point uh, during a parole hearing. Uh, I was asked, did you on March something, 1970, receive a small amount of hashish from uh, uh, Attorney George Chula? Now, I remember that incident very well because uh, I was in the Orange County Jail, and uh, I was going to see Chula. And another prisoner came out, and he said to me, hey, man, thanks a lot. And I said, thanks for what? And I went to see Chula, and Chula handed me a little block of hashish, uh, which I immediately devoured, because you're under the uh, <laughs> eye of a guard. And Chula told me that uh, he uh, had given the former prisoner uh, some of my hashish, and that's why the prisoner was thanking me for uh, hashish, so that uh, uh, it was obvious to me when the, the parole board brought this up, there was no way that I'd never mentioned it, or, so that, uh, that uh, somebody had uh, reported that to, uh, the, uh, to the authorities. So I said, yeah, Chula had given me uh, hashish. So then the parole board turned me down, this is my record, uh, for uh, parole uh, for several reasons, but one of the reasons mentioned was that uh, I had been taking uh, legal drugs, I admitted to taking legal drugs in prison. So then I was uh, called before a, uh, a grand jury, they asked me that, and I said, yeah, essentially that. But they didn't indict Chula on that because, uh, number one, there was no evidence, and number two, it was uh, a petty. So. The general consensus of opinion at that time was that Six months in the joint would do just about every dope lawyer in the country a little bit of good. Um, nobody <laughs> took that terribly seriously one way or the other. Though so I think there was a good deal of concern. Uh, I know I was very uh, puzzled by what seemed to be your deafening silence at the yeah. time, that there were so many rumors and charges uh, going on about you when... Uh, seemed obvious that the government was doing something to uh, make you sound like you were informing and that people who had some contact with you were being very critical. Yeah. And it, I'm still puzzled, really, why uh, you remained silent and uh, just let that happen. Well, all the time that I was in prison, both before my escape and afterwards, uh, I uh, never wanted to have visits from people except very close people that were very involved in my case because uh, I feel that the prisoner's situation is so uh, different that uh, honest communication between a prisoner and somebody on the outside is an undignified position to be in. So I, I was no, no uh, uh, just as a matter of policy, uh, didn't get involved in uh, a lot of writing, and uh, I was I was in close touch with certain people that I wanted. For example, Ken Kesey. I was in correspondence with Ken uh, during much of that time. Two or three other people. You called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love issue really just a myth. Yeah. Uh, see, the way that happened was uh, when I escaped to Algeria, then went to Switzerland. Uh, 
I found out the CIA didn't want me, the FBI didn't want me, but the Narcs did want me back, and Nixon wanted me back. And my lawyers have a memorandum which came from the White House on January 13, 1973, in which the White House ordered their people overseas to bust me. Now, that's illegal because you can't bust an American citizen. Yeah, so, so that uh, the, there's some people around Nixon. It's the Liddy Haldeman group who are responsible for this sort of stuff. They did, uh, they did want me back. Now, what the government did was, in 1972, they invented what they call the Brotherhood of Eternal Love Conspiracy. And I was charged with 29 counts of drug dealing. Now, each of those counts had to do with some kid that I'd never met in Laguna Beach getting busted for hashish. They, they added up 29 Laguna Beach, Orange County bus and uh -huh. called it a conspiracy. And they indicted us in something like 30 people. Of those 30 people, I knew two. Uh, one was a good friend of mine. One was, I knew vaguely. The other, 28. I had never, never heard of. Then they uh, set a $5 million bail on me. This one in Switzerland. Now, the reason they did that was to put pressure on the Swiss government to kick me out. Because the Swiss government had essentially given me asylum and said, after all, he's a professor that's guilty of uh, possessing two joints. So then they could come back to the Swiss government and say, hey, look, He's the grandfather of the hashish, uh, LSD, mafia, and uh, they invented the Brotherhood of Eternal Love. Now, there was a Brotherhood of Eternal Love, which is made up of about seven or eight uh, surfers uh, around Laguna Beach in the middle 60s who did a little grass stealing, and uh, for a while they did a little hashish stealing from Afghanistan. It was all a very spiritual kind of uh, <laughs> Laguna Beach uh, mysticism, surf mysticism, you know it. Uh, this group disbanded in 1968 when the central figure and a guy named Johnny Griggs died of apparently an overdose of psilocybin. <clears throat> then after that, the, the Brotherhood was known to be a bunch of my friends. So every dope dealer in Southern California uh, who had any dope to peddle would say, this comes from the Brotherhood. It's like Johnny Walker Scotch, you know, or, or uh, Timothy Leary Budweiser beer. So that... Uh, <laughs> I have literally thousands of people come up to me and say, hey, I tried some of your stuff. I said, what stuff do you need? Get away from me. You know, so it was a chic uh, commercial marketing thing to do. And every honky-tonk uh, dope dealer in Southern California called himself a member of the Brotherhood. It's like Kendi's PT boat. You know, we all uh, you know, dealt uh, dope with Timothy Leary. So that the, the image of the uh, Brotherhood became like a guerrilla Che Guevara romantic thing, deliberately picked up by uh, Cecil Hicks, who's the uh, district attorney of Orange County, and built up into this monster conspiracy. Uh, but the you know the narcs uh, know very well. The narcs uh, know much more about all of this than I do, or any or any dealer does. And they knew very well that uh, there was no conspiracy. And when they it was, they were very embarrassed about when they got me back by kidnapping. Then they had these charges of 29 uh, counts, and my lawyers were very eager to get me back into uh, court on that because then we could file habeas corpus and I might have gotten out because the jurisdiction would have been brought down to Orange County. And they they, they t tossed those cases out of court so fast, that, which is that they did not want to go to trial on, an, on a conspiracy uh, brotherhood theory. So, uh, number one, there was no brotherhood. Number two, um, uh, I don't know anything about dope dealing. Number three, I never testified about uh, dope that, dealing. When that warrant came out, it was approximately seven weeks before the election in 1972. It was issued That's right. yeah. for Timothy Leary and 99 John Doe's.
was the, the first issuance before they had any names to fill in on it. Uh, that was issued a week after um, trying to connect to points here which may not necessarily be related, but after Watergate they seem to be, after Nixon's famous appearance in San Jose, in which several members of the press identified the people that were throwing eggs at him as members of the White House staff, uh, the press members who traveled with Nixon, when he stood in the car and gave his double V sign uh, as they started throwing eggs. And it seemed at the time the impression received was that it was pre-election hype. I mean, you know, there was Orange County, which was thinking about other things. That was 72. The uh, California Marijuana Initiative was in full force and discovered two months before the election that there was Orange County was uh, something like 41% in favor, which they felt was exceedingly dangerous. Of, of the initiative. A lot of that had to do with politics, at least that was in, you know, that was what it had to do, but at the time that was what it was observed as. Okay, a couple more questions. Did your activities have an influence on the death of Dennis Martino? No, no. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how Dennis Martino died. Say died of an overdose of drugs uh, in Marbella, Spain. Uh, Dennis was involved in a lot of triple and quadruple agent stuff that I don't, I just have the slightest uh, knowledge of. Uh, I was <coughs> surprised and uh, very saddened to hear about his death. I don't know anything about it. And I don't know uh, who knows about it. Uh, how about the names? Billy Hitchcock and Michael Boyd Randall. Mike Randall is an old friend. Mike was one of the original members of the Brotherhood uh, uh, and has been and uh, still is a friend of mine. Uh, I don't know of any activity, uh, Michael, that uh, any illegal activity except for some dope smoking. Now, he's still a friend of mine. And, uh, he knows that uh, I don't know anything about him, and they're justified against him. Uh, Billy Hitchcock uh, is an old friend of mine uh, who uh, apparently was involved in a uh, big, well, not how big it was, uh, an acid transaction. Uh, I never knew much about this. Matter of fact, I was surprised uh, in later years to find out that uh, that. Uh, who it was that was making that acid. During the period uh, before I went to prison, uh, it was to everybody's advantage that I not know anything about or be involved very closely with people who were making acid, uh, simply because uh, I was out front. I, I made no bones about the fact that uh, I was smoking grass and that I felt that uh, uh, consciousness change was uh, you know, uh, something that uh, was part of uh, of human development so that uh, any smart dealer would never be seen in public with me and certainly uh, uh, I would never be the last one to have any active involvement in, uh, in uh, dope dealing or an acid uh, manufacture. Okay, I, uh, this cross-examination is really <laughs> getting tedious. A lot of those um, questions were what were raised in that Craig Vetter article in Playboy. Yep. which is it's gone unanswered. So I guess, and what, 14 million people read read that? Yeah. Probably mm -hmm. 
Well, okay. I got if, a, if you, a couple more. Anything unresolved, right? <laughs> <laughs> Finish it off and get back to the yeah. present work. Uh, there were words uh, during, uh, I guess, late 74, early 75, that uh, you were being uh, held under very uh, severe circumstances, sleeping on steel sheets, I believe, was one of the words that was, uh, expression was used. Uh, I've been in 29 jails and prisons in four continents. Uh, during 26 months of the 44 months that I was in prison, I was... Um, in solitary confinement. Part of this was because of my escape. The uh, the uh, prison authorities were very angry at me when they brought me back because uh, the escape had embarrassed them. And uh, so I was thrown in various holes for about six months, and then Folsom for about seven months. Uh, then, uh, yeah, I, I I did a very hard time, and I was, uh, but I was never abused. I was never. Uh, there are a lot of rumors, too, uh, that uh, the nature of my profession is one that rumors generate uh, about me. Uh, there's hardly any um, lurid rumor uh, or immorality or insanity that hasn't at one time or another been uh, attributed to me by the, the left or the right. Uh, but I'm looking for, for lobotomy scars, and I don't know. Yeah, right. Uh, there was the... the uh, for example, uh, when I was sent to Vacaville, the reason I was sent to Vacaville was because uh, they kept, any time I'd make friends in prison, they'd immediately ship out my friends because they were afraid that uh, I'd be the center of some sort of a, of a resistance. So finally, uh, uh, my best friend at uh, Folsom Prison was a man named uh, uh, Wayne Benner, who was considered the most dangerous prisoner in the state system. Uh, not because of any violent tendencies, because he was an extremely intelligent person who was tying up the CDC under his suits, and uh, he was in Max Max, it's called, uh, in, in Folsom, and they couldn't transfer him, so they transferred me to Vacaville in a, in a great hurry to get me away from uh, uh, activities, to isolate me from, from uh, what they thought were activities or a physical sort at Folsom. So when I went to Vacaville, I went there not as a patient. Vacaville is a medical hospital, but I went there uh, as a trustee, or a, call it uh, the special H category. I was a worker. And uh, But then the rumors went out, and Allen Ginsberg, uh, uh, who tends to be a little hysterical at times, was doing me no favor by running around the country accusing the uh, government of putting me in a mental hospital. Uh, now, this is, again, the... Uh, sort of rumors that, uh, that generate, that, uh, that sounded, uh, that, that confirmed the favorite rumor of the right wing and the left wing that I was brain toasted or that I was, uh, you know, in bad psychological shape. Actually, uh, I had the best time I've ever had in a prison in, in Vacaville. I was, uh, I had a, a trustee job, which it was nothing. I spent most of my time playing tennis and I had nothing to do with the, uh, I was not there as a, as a patient, but I was able to investigate the rumors about Vacaville, because in a prison there are no secrets. Everybody knows what's going on. There's no way that you can have uh, secret operations uh, in, a, in a prison. Now, there may be some secret facilities none of us know about, but I don't think so. And I can tell you and your listeners that uh, during the period that I was there at Vacaville, uh, and my, my questioning leads me to say that even before I was there, 
there's never been any attempt to brainwash or, or to uh, lobotomize or to uh, sure maybe they proposed it at times you know uh, prison kooks do that but uh, the the legislature of California is, is very alert it's a democratic legislature and it's a very sophisticated lawmakers in Sacramento who watch the prison system like hawks. There are all these rumors about Vacaville, which have tremendous currency. I would I had the experience of being in Vacaville, reading the Berkeley Barb, with front page exposés of brainwashing and uh, behavior modification and uh, the lobotomy at uh, Vacaville. Really, uh, it really irritated me because false rumors, uh, I even think, are sometimes uh, uh, originated by the right wing because. False rumors uh, take your your eyes off the real problem, and the real problem is not attempts by the uh, by the prison system to modify prisoner behavior. The real scandal is that they don't give a damn about that. That the last thing in the world they want to do is change prisoners' behavior. That they're very satisfied with the uh, fact that they have a large criminal population that's guaranteed to keep coming back to the prisons, therefore guaranteeing an increase in the uh, prison budgets and uh, uh, increase in the prison staff and uh, guaranteeing their jobs. So the, the real scandal there is that nothing is being done to change prisons. Not that there's... Uh, sure, you get kooky psychiatrists uh, who can always get headlines by proposing something uh, like this. Uh, but, uh, to my knowledge, nothing of this sort. The only thing I could find out of Vacaville is they were using uh, prolixin. And during my stay at uh, Vacaville, I talked to some of the psychiatrists at Vacaville, and I, ex I extracted promises from most of them that they would stop using prolixin because it does produce uh, a zombie state, which is probably no different than the average middle-class suburban driving to, to his office, but still... Uh, And again, you have to realize that Vacaville is a difficult place because there are a lot of criminally insane people. It's no, I mean, you can't uh, duck the, the hard fact that, that there are a lot of sick people in our society. And I hope, hopefully, uh, the next mutation will take care of that. But in a crowded uh, urban environment, you get a lot of uh, very violently sick people, and uh, it's a problem. We shove it off to the prison system. But what are they going to do with a guy that absolutely will physically attack anyone that comes near it? I mean, that, uh, it's easy to, you know, we just brush that under the rug. So there are wards at uh, Vacaville where they keep people, uh, they're pretty locked up and they're allowed out on roofs and cages. And every time I'd go out to the yard to play tennis or to uh, get some athletics, uh, these guys, it's, it's a bad situation. They're like animals. They would come crowding to the cage and wave to me, you know, and I'd stand there and uh, talk back to them and tell them, you know, uh, get out, man, and straighten up uh, until the gun guards would uh, whistle and uh, or the last speaker tell me to move or I'd get shot. But, uh, yeah, Vacaville is a, is, there's a lot of uh, tragic stuff there, but I don't, there's no prison brutality that I know of. I, I, you brought up, uh, um, G. Gordon Liddy, and uh, I just found out a short time ago that uh, Liddy was the assistant district attorney that busted you up in Millbrook. Can you uh, give any uh, uh, description of your perceptions of uh, Liddy based on that experience? 
Yeah, I wrote a little book about that called uh, Curse of the Oval Room, which is published by High Times, the uh, slick magazine. comes out of New York. Uh, Liddy was a very ambitious assistant DA. And he is a... You know, he's, I really almost like Liddy because he's such a comic opera figure that he would carry a gun around and he was... The state police hated him because he was always pulling his own operations. He was a, he was a young kid that believed all the, you know, the, the spy stories that he read, and he was he's a, ro he's a romantic. Uh, anyway, he was, uh, he surveyed us. He led several uh, midnight raids uh, on my place, and he he did get me, he did force me out of Texas County because it was just too much of a hassle to live there. Uh, <clears throat> although none of the raids ever produced any. Uh, Otherwise, indicted several times on uh, on marijuana charges. They never found a drop of marijuana because we had things pretty well hid. Uh, anyway, after Liddy drove me out of the county, he ran for uh, uh, Congress on a conservative ticket in Dutchess County, and uh, his campaign picture was a picture of me uh, with a thing uh, a blurb about how uh, Liddy had, uh, you know, uh, driven degeneracy from the county. Liddy lost the, uh, he lost the, uh, I know, yeah, he ran for the Republican primary and was beaten by a man named Hamilton Fish. Then after the uh, primary, Liddy was going to run on the conservative ticket, which was drawn off uh, votes from Hamilton Fish, so a deal was worked out that uh, Hamilton Fish agreed to uh, get uh, Liddy out of the county to the White House. And get him a federal job. Uh, Fish later was on the House Judiciary Committee. That's right. right. He became famous during that. He's a good guy. I, mean, I don't blame him for this. Yeah. He wanted to get elected. He was having a hot election against a Democrat. So uh, it was for a Democrat seat, as a matter of fact. So uh, uh, the deal was that Liddy would go to the White House and not run against uh, Fish. And do, of course, Fish was elected. And uh, Liddy went to the White House. When Liddy got to the White House, his credentials were the leading dope cop in the country because he had got my uh, mm. butt. Yeah. Let me ask you one thing that's yeah. passed into the mythology yeah. and see if it's uh, find out if it's true. There was one possibly apocryphal raid that Liddy led on Millbrook in which he um, appropriated a whole bunch of incense that was there and issued an indictment for paraphernalia and conspiracy to religion. Yeah. Is that true that that was? That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Okay, let's okay. Well, Liddy got to the White House, and Liddy's a drug expert, as you know. Liddy was the mastermind behind the Project Intercept, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, was a big, and then he was such an invaluable agent to the White House that they put him in charge of uh, of uh, Watergate and the Ellsberg break-ins and so forth. Yeah, Operation Intercept also brought in Caulfield and That's right. Alaska wins. Yeah, and I'm using <coughs> the uh, when I was at T Terminal Island Federal Prison. Um, Liddy had just left, but he left me a friendly note saying, Dear Tim, brother, wish you luck, and uh, hope we'll meet again, which was uh, an interesting uh, fallout. And the funny thing was that when Liddy was uh, at Terminal Island, he belonged to a uh, creative writing class, and uh, he would attend it uh, regularly. And finally, it was his turn to, uh, to read what uh, he had written. So he stood in front of the group like a West Point cadet, in a very military, uh, uptight situation, 
and so he was barking out orders, he read a story which was about his raid on my Millbrook uh, establishment, which he later got published in True Magazine. Yes, I read it there. Yeah. In fact, we read it on the air. It made a big hit. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, I wrote to Allen Ginsberg just before I got out of prison. I said, look, uh, no, just after I got out of prison, Allen Ginsberg is very uh, involved in Penn. That's the uh, Penn Club is the Association of Authors, and they're always trying to get writers out of prison, particularly writers who are in for their writing, and they Penn did help to get me out. And uh, I said, uh, then Eldridge Cleaver got out, and I said, look, the only two writers left in prison are G. Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt, and they're both in, in prison for political crime. You know, you may not like their politics, but why don't you get the Penn Club to uh, back uh, the, the liberation of uh, these fellow writers, Gordon Liddy and Howard Hunt, whom I consider comic figures, uh, really. In fact, Ellen wrote back and said, well, I never thought of that, but uh, I, uh, I don't think they should be allowed unless they tell all. Now, I, I thought that was a very funny, like, uh, double morality here, that it's all right for uh, them to tell all, but, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's all the questions I have. I thank you very much for your uh, excellent testimony. I'd like to present you with the Pacifica FM 90 t-shirt in appreciation. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we have been uh, talking with Dr. Timothy Leary. My name is Steve Heimel, and I'm pretty well uh, have exhausted my questions. I'm going to shut my mouth and uh, let some of the others uh, get into it. With us are uh, Howard Perlstein, who is a uh, director of publications for the Contemporary Arts Museum. And uh, Dr. Henry Marshall, who uh, works at the Texas Research Institute of uh, Mental Science and uh, is a psychologist, and more than that, is also into psychohistory. He's into uh, figuring out the relationships between uh, people, thoughts, and the time. Um, Henry, I thought I might uh, turn it over to you for a while, and I thought maybe you could uh, go into the whole subject of... Uh, Timothy Leary and his times. Well, I wanted to, uh, in the form of a question, to uh, uh, one of the skeletons, I think, that we didn't unearth is an image that has been uh, created of uh, Dr. Leary of being some kind of uh, brain-destroyed uh, madman who was uh, messed up by LSD, who was once a very great, perhaps, psychologist who uh, somehow went crazy when he took too much acid. And I wanted to uh, just uh, ask you, uh, have you had uh, any testing that would uh, be evidence that would uh, you know, discount the fact that your chromosomes have been broken and your brain has been destroyed? Is there any uh, evidence, as it were, besides your... Uh, ability to talk with us here. Well, you've raised two <coughs> ominous possibilities. <coughs> you referred to the chromosome yes. uh, myth about uh, LSD. Now, I want to see, any time I talk about drugs, I'm being pulled into the trap that I was pulled into in the 60s, that uh, if an unscientific slander is made about a drug, if you say uh, marijuana is addictive, and then I say, no, it's not. It sounds as though I'm uh, somehow advocating marijuana. Uh, so with this uh, qualification, I will risk answering your uh, question. 
about chromosomes. Uh, there's about no, your chromosomes. Well, in general, there's been no evidence that uh, that uh, any of the drugs that developed in the 60s uh, uh, affect chromosomes. However, uh, to take your uh, question more personally, in 1969, I went to the Harvard Medical School and uh, went through uh, blood tests in which they did broken chromosome counts. And it turns out that I had significantly fewer uh, chromosome breaks than, uh, than the average person. They, it was like a mystery. How come I had such... Uh, then this led to other accusations on the part of uh, psychedelic uh, politicians that I was a fraud, that I'd never taken LSD at all. So uh, there you go. Uh, so that uh, my chromosomes are doing dandy. <laughs> now, uh, as far as uh, brain damage and psychosis is concerned, uh, I feel fine. Uh, never felt more productive. Sure, there are a lot of things that happened in the 60s. The 60s are kind of a crazy time. We were all running around or uh, bobbing around on one of the biggest uh, waves of cultural change in history. And uh, each month in the 60s, uh, enormous uh, tidal uh, uh, waves were crashing over us. And there were very few of us that, uh, that even had a glimpse of understanding as to what was happening. So there were many, many mistakes I made. There were many postures that I got into. Uh, I was easy, easy to trap in public situations because uh, I'm basically a courageous person. I, you know, I have confidence in my own beliefs, so that uh, I charge around. Uh, it was easy to uh, to make me look foolish, but uh, that never bothered me really. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. As much as I would like to hear the rest of this interview right now. I'm going to cut it off here and we'll pick up on the interview in a day or so with another podcast. But I thought that with everything that's going on right now with the Occupy Wall Street and the other Occupy demonstrations going on, that this is a good time to focus on maybe the ins and outs of civil disobedience. First of all, if you are involved in these actions, I hope that you keep in mind the fact that some of the people at the demonstrations may not be on the same page as you are, since uh, there are obviously a few undercover screwheads who are working for the power elite to keep these things under control and uh, spin them in the wrong direction. In fact, we just heard how they created hate and discontent among the revolutionaries of the 60s, and uh, believe me, they're at it again. So I think that it's worth taking uh, at least a few seconds here to replay what Dr. Leary had to say about not getting angry when confronting law enforcement, because that may happen. Here, here is what he had to say. I don't believe in the politics of anger, and uh, I uh, regret, regret this, because I think that it's our, our duty to uh, educate the police, to relate to the police, to uh, to uh, raise their consciousness, and uh, I don't believe in us and them. I don't believe we can alienate ourselves from any aspect of uh, society, particularly the people who run societies. Now, in a day or so, I'll get us back to the Timothy Leary interview that we just heard. 
But before I close today's program, I want to play a short recording that I made of the live feed from the Occupy Wall Street demonstration, which, in my opinion, is a continuation of the revolution that Dr. Leary and the 60s generation were also engaged in. As you know, uh, at livestream.com slash global revolution, you can watch the feed coming out of Liberty Park in New York. In fact, uh, just last night, they even had a live feed from inside a paddy wagon that was hauling some of the protesters off to jail. Uh, And that was after the police assaulted them and broke some of their glasses and their noses in the process. It's really amazing to be able to watch this action live, and uh, just as we did for the Tahir Square demonstrations in Egypt at the beginning of this year. And just to uh, give you a little idea of what you'll hear on that feed that uh, I'll link to in the program notes, of course. Uh, Well, the other night I recorded a brief interview with a man who was just released from jail after having uh, been arrested during the protest. And uh, here's what he had to say. And and you'll also kind of pick up on the uh, casual uh, atmosphere of what's going on. These are just uh, uh, people like you and I down there with their cameras and laptops and uh, plugging into the net and letting us see what's going on. So uh, here here is uh, one of the uh, little uh, commentaries that came over live feed the other night. This, uh, this, is the, this is the monk that I was talking about that went on hunger strike in jail and went and talked to the cops. Tell him your name, bro. Hello, friends. I'm Dada. I'm a monk. I teach meditation. And yes, on Saturday, these policemen decided to block the high, block the road on the Brooklyn Bridge. They got in front of us and back of us, as they do, and they said that we were blocking the traffic. Actually, they were. And there I was at the back of the group, didn't realize that there was no parade behind me. I thought I was in the middle and I was at the end. I turned around, and there were all of these police across the street, the white shirts and the blue shirts, and these... um, trucks ready to pick us up, facing the wrong direction, driving the wrong way on, the, on the, another violation of the law. And then I saw, uh-oh, they're going to arrest me, everybody probably. So I said, what's the best way to get arrested? I don't want to be going with like a dog with my tail between my legs. So I sat down and do what I do. I do meditation and thought... That's really the way I want to be arrested. And then they came and said, you're under arrest for blocking traffic, stand up. And I just continued doing meditation. And then they they said, you have to get up. They tried to lift me. I just became like a dead body. And they said, you know, behaving like this, you can get in more trouble. But, you know, I just stayed like a sack of potatoes and they picked me up to all 212 pounds. And then tried to put me in the van, which they did. Then when we got in the van, the policeman said something really strange. He said, okay, there are no more cameras around now, so you can stop acting out this thing. Which I wasn't doing it for that. I was really angry with these police for the way they're behaving. I mean, they should make a distinction between crowd control and riot. We weren't rioting. They actually said that a couple times. They, they, every time we were in jail, they would talk to us and they would say, there are no more cameras around. You don't have to protest anymore. Right. So they're always giving this message that the reason we're doing it is for some selfish purposes. 
which is, a, I'm a psychologist as well, and we know that people project their own issues on other people. So I just took it as their problem, not mine. And then I decided, why should I talk to these people? They're not doing the right thing. So I decided just to be quiet, not to speak to them. And on, also, one of the rules we follow as monks is we don't eat food that is given by mean-minded people. So I didn't want to take food from the from the policemen. So they offered me food, but I didn't eat it. But what was really inspiring for me was all the people that were in the lockup with me as we went through, got ourselves registered or whatever you call it, as we walked into the room to join everybody else, people would clap and, you know, sort of welcome us like we were stars or heroes or something. And then the, the other thing was that when I, I got up and explained to everybody why I was doing what I was doing, they decided, they called a meeting at that very moment and facilitated anybody want to join Dada and his decision not to take any food from the jail. And 55, all the people, there are about 100 plus people in the room, 55 people decided not to eat food in solidarity with me. I was very touched by that. So I think it's important for everybody to know that there's more than a demonstration that's happening here. This is a community. It's teaching people how to live together, share their pleasures and pains, and to support each other and not to be confrontational about their their positions, but just support people in how they're trying to be authentic in, in changing the way things are done in the world today. The other thing is was very funny, or if you can say concerning for me, was when they talked about us, they said, how many bodies are in your truck? They said, oh, we have 10 bodies. So instead of saying people or persons, or, some people said, we're citizens, we're not, we're not bodies. So I started thinking, I thought of this song, you know, you're nobody till somebody loves you. <laughs> so I guess these police didn't love us, so we were nobodies, only bodies. Yeah, they, they called us bodies uh, numerous numerous times in the uh, when we were in the when we were waiting outside the police station. There was a uh, me and me and Dada were in the same uh, paddy wagon. There's a couple other guys in the paddy wagon that I want. I wish they were here right now. That I wish I could find them right now, so you guys can see them too. But they'll be they'll be on. I'll make sure that they get on here too. Anyway, I had a really great time. I'm very inspired. I think this is the greatest thing to see everybody here together. It's a cathartic experience. It's a demonstration. It's a statement of unity. It's, you know, I, I, this morning every, every cell of my body was just popping like popcorn with happiness and, enjoy, and inspiration. Uh, having been to jail. So some, somebody asked where they can find you. Um, I want to say that you can find them in Zakuda Park. Where can they find you? Well, I'm here every day from 1 until 8, uh, unless I'm in jail. <laughs> I missed two days. But you can get me online. I have a, a web page, dadaprana.com, D-A-D-A-P-R-A-N-A.com. Yeah, somebody write that down. It's D uh, dadaprana.com. Yeah. I got all my articles about meditation, and you can contact me there by email if you want. Anyway. Uh, hey, thank, thanks, Tiana. Thanks, uh, Theo. Who's that? Uh, they, they wrote oh, your website. They wrote your website maybe you down. Maybe you want to see my, my slogan <laughs> on my shirt. Oh, let's see. Can you, guys, can you guys see the shirt? People, people who profit from the suffering um, of others are immoral P 
people who suffer from the uh, profit of others are immoral. Um, all right. Look, dude. We are with you from here. We're with you, too. So, hey, guys. Um, I think uh, pretty soon they've got to go over to um, the drum circle because it's, it's popping over there right now. There's a lot of stuff going on over there. So we're going we're gonna to take the live feed over to the drum circle. It was nice to hang out with y'all. Um, is there any last questions that you guys really want me to answer before I uh, walk up? Can you, say the, can you say the name of the gentleman who was st sing, singing with you in the red? Who was uh, stinging? What, I don't know what stinging means. Do you guys realize that the whole world is watching and what we really expect that there is no turning from it? Yeah, there's no turning back from this. We don't plan on turning back. We know the whole world is watching and uh, I hope the whole world continues watching. Um, welcome. October? Hey, Monk, say something about 15th October. I think that, that's another big march that we have. That's not this weekend, it's next weekend. You know, somebody asked, took my photo of my shirt. Wanted to, you know, a lot of people take a picture of this. People who profit from the sufferings of others are immoral. And he asked me, is there any message you want to give the youth? And I said... Get ready to go to jail. It's one of the best. It's almost like a university. It's like an ashram. Go to jail. You get to understand what the police are also going through because they've got some issues too. And what I found out is that these guys have a union, but they, have, they can't strike. So they've been negotiating for two years for better benefits, and they're not getting anything because they have no way to pressure. And the government spends a lot of money for them for, you know, material things. To, to make their work efficient, but they don't give a damn about the policemen. Hey, there, uh, somebody asked how old you were. Um, uh, the monk is infinite. Well, I'm 68 years old, going on 28. <laughs> All right, guys, so we're going to take you guys over to the drum circle. Uh, I'll see you again another time. Uh, thanks for hanging out with me uh, and the monk. Bye. Thanks a lot. I'll see you guys. Well, that's going to do it for now, and uh, so I'll close today's podcast by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And if you are interested in some of the stories that uh, may or may not have led uh, you and me to where we're sharing this moment together right now, uh, well, you can uh, read a few of them in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available in Kindle and other ebook formats, as well as a pay-what-you-can audiobook read by me. And uh, you can find out more about that at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends, and I'm going to leave you with uh, another short soundbite from the live feed of the Operation Wall Street protest. It's a song by a young man whose friend is now serving in Afghanistan, and the reason I'm playing it is simply because it reminds me quite a bit of uh, the things that we heard during the anti-war protests of the 60s. But back then, it was next to impossible to find out what was going on on the front lines because the corporate media just didn't want us to know about it. But today we have the Internet, and uh, that is a real game-changer in my opinion. 
So uh, now this is a bit rough and the sound quality isn't too good because, you know, we're talking about a microphone and a laptop here. But it's a good sampling of the raw emotion that's beginning to come to the surface all over the world as we head to the massive demonstrations that are being planned everywhere for October 15th, 2011. And I'm sure I'll see you there. When the helmets hit the ground at the drums of dawn Where the thunder roars as the trumpets sound For the children born by the smoking guns In atomic flames where the ties all come undone When the helmets hit the ground Will we hide in shame from our own mistakes While we place the blame for will freedom
cool. Thank you all for letting me play that. Thank you. Yeah, everybody keeps everybody come out here. This is awesome, and we're changing the world. <laughs> my name is Matt Pless. That's P L E S S, and all my stuff's free. So look me up if you want to find that song. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>